0: I suddenly realised, I remember saying, Michael is not coming home. I couldn't go to the door dead, but I knew Michael wasn't coming home.
1: In the early hours of February the 14th, 1981, 48 young people died when fire engulfed the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin
2: he said "Places uh, place is on fire we're not going to get everybody out tell the officer to send absolutely everything that you have
1: nobody saw it coming if they did it was already too late
3: just people were screaming outside you
4: could hear them screaming
1: 846 people came through the doors that night 44 would never come out 4 more died in hospital it was one of Ireland's most catastrophic tragedies.
0: And then everything went black, and everybody started squealing and roaring, and and you could see the flames. Do you know what I mean? And everybody then—it was just
4: like wild animals.
1: Getting out was a lottery.
4: There was a state play, and bars on the windows, so we we couldn't get out.
1: Only fate decided who lived, and who died. For some survivors, they never really got out. And for the families left behind, their souls were taken with their kids inside that building.
4: Those that got
0: out of the building are out of hell, but we've lived in hell.
1: They were left at the mercy of an uncaring state.
0: I want to know why the state interfered. I want questions answered.
1: This is the story of the Stardust tragedy. Brought to you by the Irish Sun. In years gone by, Jerry the Munkutch would have been one of the very few Irish gangsters that might have been considered untouchable. Such was his reputation. He was able to live in relative security. Godfather-like figure. No one dared to anger. Not just that. Because he wasn't directly involved in the drugs game, he didn't get in trouble with other criminal gangs. But by the time Gary, his nephew, was taken down by the Kinahans, things had changed. We were entering into a brand new era of Irish gangland. And Jerry Hutch knew this. Three months on from Gary's murder, the monk was living in Lanzarote. He'd settled down there in the latter years of his career.
7: Jerry Hutch had a long association with Lanzarote. had an apartment there. And was quite well known uh, in the Lanzarote area and around. The winter of 2015, Jerry had been staying there.
1: The family were still raiding from the death of his nephew Gary, particularly Patsy, Gary's dad, Jerry's brother. In the three months since the poolside shooting, Delboy, Patsy's middle child, survived two vicious assaults in Mountjoy. Another clear warning from the Kinahan gang. Although they tried not to show it, the whole family was worried. But at least in Lanzarote, Jerry was far away from the troubles brewing back in Dublin 1
7: obviously he felt safer there in that island, you know, things were very tense at that stage with the Kinahan cartel.
1: On New Year's Eve 2015 Jerry and his wife Patricia were out for a meal in Puerto del Carmen It was a busy night as revelers awaited to count down the new year The bar was one he frequented regularly and would know many of the regulars there
7: he always took precautions you know he was very security conscious he obviously was aware of the, of the threat posed to him by the, the Kinnaghan cartel
1: As a round of drinks were coming to the table Jerry noticed two couples entered the bar He took a second glance as he recognised one of the faces Amon Cumberton a young man from Mountjoy Street in Dublin 1 a Hutch Heartland, but it was well known Cumberton's loyalty lay with another Dublin crime family. After a couple of minutes, the two couples finished their drinks and left the bar in a hurry. It was an oddly quick visit.
7: And immediately, his instincts kicked in, his survival instincts came to the fore.
1: Without rushing, Jerry got up from his seat and made a beeline to the side door. It led out to one of the island's back streets. A waiter noticed he left without picking up his tab. An unusual move for a man who knew the owners and their staff. No less than two minutes later, Cumberton and his male associate re entered the bar. This time, however, Cumberton was clad in disguise, with the pistol drawn at his waist. "'Where is he?' he shouted across the room. With the monk nowhere in sight, the two men quickly realised he'd scarpered. Out disappeared into the night. That night was an eye-opener for the once-untouchable Godfather. Gary Hutch's death had changed the playing field.
8: They walked through the hotel and they were clearly looking for somebody. It's on the CCTV, you can see the two men looking for somebody.
6: And I'm looking down the barrel of the gun at this point. I think I'm going to die, you know. I never knew the meaning of the word terrified until uh, this afternoon. Mm
1: The Kinnahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. Episode 5, The Regency. By the beginning of 2016, Macklin's gym in Marbella was beginning to flourish in the boxing world. Daniel Kinnahans' pet project had developed well in the three years since it was established. So much so that in October 2015, the gym had a world champion in its ranks. Matthew Macklin, Daniel Kinahan's business partner, spent all of January 2016 preparing fighters for a headline event taking place in Dublin February the 6th. Clash of the Clans A European light heavyweight bout between Irish boxer Jamie Cavanagh and a nippy Portuguese veteran by the name of Antonio Geo Bento. It wasn't quite the rumble in the jungle, it wasn't quite filling Croke Park, but a sellout at Dublin's National Stadium had shown some level of progress for the new kids on the block. As usual, the Saturday night fight would be preceded by a Friday afternoon weigh-in. This would take place in the Regency Hotel, Irish sons, Michael
8: Doyle. There was a number of boxers involved and members of the Kinnahan cartel were present. Daniel Kinnaghan was there along with um, some other associates David Byrne, Sean McGovern. It was a busy
1: weekend for the hotel. Ireland were hosting Wales and the Six Nations. so a mixture of boxing people, sports fans and regular guests floated around. It was a normal day in Dublin City. Right up until it wasn't.
7: Remember it as clear as day. Um, I was in the newsroom. It was a Friday afternoon, and like just a normal day, preparing stories for the weekend. Little did they know what stories I would be writing for uh, the weekend edition, and just the, the news just came through.
1: Back at the hotel, a silver Ford transit van approached the entrance to the Regency's car park. As it pulled in off the main road, it drove down past a row of shops and headed towards the rear of the site. It was a large plot of land which housed the hotel, a separate restaurant and a convenience store among other businesses. It was 2.25 in the afternoon and the boxing weigh-ins had been ongoing for about 20 minutes at this stage. Weigh-ins can be pretty hit and miss, often incredibly boring spectacles but sometimes exciting if something novel were to happen. A bust up between two boxers in the stair-off or a surprise entrance often orchestrated by the promoters themselves. Nobody expected what was to come next. Outside, the Ford van continued down the hotel's long entrance road before coming to a stop 20 metres beyond the lobby doors. It was parked up near a side laundry entrance. Industrial and dirty. It wasn't a door you'd enter accidentally first to exit the van was a small set man in his 40s. He was wearing a black fleece, navy tracksuit bottoms and a grey flat cap. From here on in he'll be known as Flat Cap. There was nothing particularly extraordinary about him. He settled himself as he exited the vehicle and waited for someone to accompany him. The next person to shuffle out the van's door was a much more intriguing looking figure. It was a man dressed in a mundane women's outfit of black knee high boots and a dark overcoat, mid week office attire at best. His face was caked with a cheap bronze makeup, giving a particularly rosy complexion around the cheeks. It was hard to tell at first glance, but the obvious giveaway was the brown shoulder-length wig and the obvious masculine strut. The pair gave each other a nod before quickly heading through the laundry exit door.
8: They walked through the hotel and they were clearly looking for somebody. It's on the CCTV, you can see the two men looking for somebody.
1: The weigh-in was taking place in the Regency suite a large function room towards the back of the hotel. Inside a small stage was erected with Clash of the Clans and MGM branding. It was a large audience and many journalists. Irish boxer Gary McSweeney was dressed in a pair of Superman underpants, and he was getting weighed in by Mel Crystal, an official from Boxing Ireland. The audience whooped as rock music played out across the hotel's P.A. system. While Max Sweeney was doing his stuff, flat and the man in drag strutted through the hotel corridors with purpose. It was only a short distance to their destination, but they knew exactly where to go. Inside, Max Sweeney had just stepped off the scales. He was pleased with himself for making weight. Daunting prospect that every fighter knows about. He bent down to put on his trousers when suddenly he heard a large commotion coming from the back of the room. As he looked up, a number of people in the audience leapt from their chairs. Flatcap and the man in the wig were at the back of the room, both brandishing pistols. Suddenly, all hell broke loose.
7: It's at that stage when there's sheer chaos, sheer panic.
1: Much of the audience flooded through a number of emergency exits into a laneway at the back of the hotel. Pandemonium. Cries of children could be heard as people tried to figure out what the hell was going on.
8: At this point, the number of shots were fired into the air.
1: The duo continued to search the room. More rounds were fired as they tried to get control.
7: They, obviously, they were looking for one individual, Daniel Kinnan.
1: They scanned face after face after face. But the gunmen were faced with a problem.
8: Their target was nowhere to be seen. Daniel Kinnan was the target of this hit attempt, but he managed to escape at a side door the man dressed as a woman a witness overheard him saying he's not here he's not here as soon as the
1: commotion began Daniel Kinahan took off along with other key cartel figures running with the rest of the crowd he made his way onto the swords road and away from danger he didn't wait around to see what happened next guests and spectators alike were coming to realise they were caught up in a serious incident things had only just begun. Flat cap and the man in drag. This was just phase one of the assault. John Glynn was manager of the Regency Hotel at the time. He was in the hotel lobby when the ambush began as he recalled to RTE News.
3: So what happened was around 1.30 I heard this bang and I thought it was a bottle that broke in the bar and suddenly I saw people running left, right and centre out of the function room and, you know, I was wondering what was this all about. So at that, I then noticed three men dressed as Gardaí coming in the front door. Now they were fully guardy uniformed mm. and the first thing that hit my mind was here's three guards coming in maybe mm. for a bit of lunch. I actually was about to approach them to see were they okay. Then I spotted the arms. Now we're in a different world altogether.
5: Kevin
1: Macanina was a BBC boxing journalist in attendance. He'd slipped out of the weigh-in and headed towards the hotel's front entrance moments before the ambush took place. He recalled his experience to RTE back in 2016.
6: I was actually just on my way out of the function room that the weigh-in was in and I was walking through the corridor and i just got into the lobby and people were filing out and I noticed panic. People started running and pushing and shoving. I didn't know what was going on. I thought maybe a fist fight had broken out behind them and I actually looked at the receptionist and I said what's going on?
1: As a wave of people ran through the lobby and out the doors at the front entrance the men in guardy uniform walked towards the crowd in the direction of the weighing room. Briefly, panic began to subside. As guests were relieved to see the guardie had arrived on the scene, it's okay,
8: it's the E.R.U.
1: One punter shouted.
8: But at this point was when the three guardie went in, and because of the nature of their entrance and I guess the attire they were wearing, many people believed them to be real real guardie because it all happened so quickly. People weren't, didn't have time to look at the fact that they were wearing runners or the fact that they were armed with guns. The guardie wouldn't ordinarily be armed, so that caused enough confusion. People stopped, some people were asking them, where do we go, what happens next? And that kind of added to the confusion of the whole of the whole incident. Although Daniel
1: Kinahan had made his exit, some of the cartel's top brass were still amongst the action. David Bourne, one of the gang's most senior members, moved quickly from the weigh-in room towards the hotel lobby. On CCTV, he looked confused and unsure of his next move. It was clear to Dawson to know that Daniel's life was in the most immediate danger. So Byrne spent about twenty-five seconds looking for the oldest kin and son to try and get him away from danger.
7: Where the fuck is he? He screamed. David Byrne then panics. He goes against the crowd, who, who are you could see in the CCTV running along the corridors, trying to escape. David Byrne comes into the foyer of the hotel. As he goes in, he meets the hit team.
1: What Kevin McEnina saw next will always stay with him. It unfolded right in front of his eyes. David Byrne exited an adjoining corridor of the lobby. There he came face to face with the three men. Suddenly it hit him.
6: I almost kind of froze and one other guy ran across the middle of the lobby and one of the guys with the guns turned shot him in the lower leg and he went down and he was possibly just six feet from me
1: Born was shot in the leg at close range and hit the deck before he got the chance to plead for mercy bang was blasted with five further rounds first his head then into his stomach and hand finally his face splattering blood and brain matter across the white tile floor as his body lay motionless it was clear he was dead as Bourne was being executed Makinina jumped behind the reception desk for cover one of the gunmen followed his movements and jumped up on top of the marble counter the journalist cowered behind the desk as a Kalashnikov was pointed straight down at him.
6: And I'm looking down the barrel of the gun at this point. I think I'm going to die, you know. I never knew the meaning of the word terrified until uh, this afternoon. And I just shouted, don't shoot, don't shoot. I think I actually said i innocent in the middle of this. And he left again then. And uh, I stayed hiding down there for about a minute or so before I scuttled off in the back room.
7: Even when they shoot. David Byrne, they still run along the, the corridors, they still go into an area where people are eating food. You can see them running around and just even looking up and downstairs, just stalking uh, to try and find Daniel Kinahan
1: With Daniel Kinnahan nowhere in sight, the hit team fled out the front door and one by one began to bundle into the same Silver Ford Transit that had brought them to the venue. Onlookers at the entrance to the hotel watched on as they made their escape. Ernie Leslie, a freelance photographer for the Sunday World was there covering the event from a parked van in the car park. As Flatcap and the man in the wig hurried out the front entrance, like any expert photographer, he began to record them. Leslie photographed what would become one of the most iconic Irish gangland photos of all time. A full-length picture of Flatcap and the man in drag waving guns. An invaluable piece of evidence for future investigators. Panic-stricken guests tried desperately to piece together what had just happened. As the pool of blood grew and grew in the reception lobby. David Bourne wasn't the only casualty. Two other Kinnahan associates had also been hit with stray bullets. Sean McGovern tended to his wounded leg, as Arden Bulger screamed in agony, as a close friend put pressure on his injured stomach. Some in attendance took out their phones to record.
6: Fuck me, there's no way there, Gareth.
1: As the getaway driver took off, they headed towards the back gates of the hotel. She linked up with an apartment complex off Grace Park Road. From beginning to end, we attack lasted just under six minutes. The gates were locked, but the gang had a stolen key fob, an early indication on the level of planning that had gone into
3: the hit. They're down there, they're stuck down there with the... Not oh, They're stuck down there with the things that are locked. No, they were trying to get out down there. They dropped down there in their
1: van. They anxiously waited for the electronic gates to open. in a way so slow and familiar to anyone who's entered an office or apartment car park. Halfway ajar, with enough room for the Ford to slip through. The driver floored it in the direction of Marino. There, in the Charlemagne estate, beside St. Vincent's GAA Club, six cars awaited the men. Each member of the team got out of the van before one set it on fire. The hit squad then entered their awaiting vehicles and made their final getaway.
5: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot...
1: Within minutes of the attack, word started to circulate that something big had gone down in the Regency.
7: The news started to break. A few phone calls, a few texts that there has been a shooting. And immediately you thought, what was going on at the Regency Hotel?
2: If I recall, with my assistant commissioner at the time, who was John O'Driscoll, and out of the blue, we got notified fairly quickly of this horrendous attack that had happened at the Regency Hotel. The first thing that would strike anyone, whether you were a member of the Garda-Chicona or not, was the unprecedented nature of the event in the location where it had taken place and the nature of the firearms involved.
3: I was at a conference on a murder just finished and somebody rang me to tell me what had happened in the Regency. So I quickly went there and saw the scene you think it's an exaggeration till you see the CCTV and you see this well-armed, well-disciplined group of people coming in with kalashnikovs and you realize at that stage things will never be the same again this is this is a milestone
1: within minutes guardian journalists were at the scene It was an outpouring of grief from those who knew the deceased David Byrne. Liam Byrne, David's brother, was visibly distraught as he tried to come to terms with what had just taken place. Another witness was vomiting against a wall, while Liam Rowe screamed with rage at any cops trying to get information from the Kinahan gang members who remained at the scene. Freddie Thompson, a close cousin of both the Burns
3: was informed by phone. Unfortunately, it was a man dead at the scene. What was most worrying was the group of people who managed to do what... Th- that they executed this act, and they had the firepower to do it, and they had the nerve to do it, and they went there with a mindset that they were going to shoot a number of people in the Regency... And they were going to shoot anybody that got in their way. And I quickly realised, while unfortunately some people were injured and one man was killed, this could have been a complete bloodbath. There could have been six or seven dead bodies in there and six or seven dead policemen coming in.
1: It was clear that David Bourne was not the original target of the attack. That this was destined for Daniel Kinahan. He'd been extremely lucky to get away with his life. Bourne's murder, however, was a huge loss for the cartel.
7: David Bourne acted as an enforcer, as someone who was heavily involved in the drugs trade himself. would have worked very closely with his brother as well, but he would have been the the individual who would have been demanding uh, payments from vulnerable people, from addicts, people he hadn't paid up, and he would have gone and issued threats and intimidated people in the past as well. He he was heavily involved and was regarded as a key player within the organisation in Ireland.
1: The sheer scale of the attack was hard to fathom. It was carried out in multiple phases. The squad had stolen a key fob to enable their getaway. They were dressed in full emergency response unit disguises. This had been weeks or even months in planning.
3: These people realised that the guards hadn't adequate resources to deal with them. And they were aware of that. They had done the research And this emboldened them to do what they did, and it was was not just an attack on the Regency and on the individuals in there. This was an attack on the state. What would happen if these people turned up at a guard station? What would happen if they turned up at a shopping centre?
7: The
1: hit squad had a huge problem on their hands. In the end, the Regency attack was a botched hit. Daniel Kinahan was very much alive. John Mooney, security correspondent with the Sunday Times, believes that for all the gang's intricate planning and organisation, their execution on the day was a disaster.
5: I think when you think about the Regency, like Labour at this point, that this wasn't really a master crime that was carried out in a competent way. The person they sought to kill escaped. Those involved decided to do this in a display of bravado and what they thought was strength. That didn't really work out for them. They were all compromised very quickly.
1: This was a landmark moment in Irish crime. Gardie had no other option but to invest every possible resource to bring the attackers to justice.
5: And then when the dust settled a bit, I kind of couldn't help but think that this was the most idiotic type of operation that had possibly been devised ever. For the simple reason is is that governments and police forces can be slow to act, but there are events that force their hand. And when a government decides to take on a criminal organisation, there's only going to be one winner.
3: These people had overstepped the mark. It was just like with Veronica Guerin. What happens is people, they get emboldened, they get arrogant, they think, people think they're untouchable, people think they can think up these plans and go and execute them, and sometimes they can. But it is very important that they realise as a consequence that you can't get away with that in a civilised society.
2: Ireland was now being put on the international scene and being highlighted as a country where this level of organised crime could happen midday in a packed hotel. And we realised at that stage, you know,
3: this is a warlike situation. This is, we mean business, and we're running around with Kalashnikovs in the streets of Dublin.
1: It didn't take long before questions were being asked as to how exactly all this could have happened. Since the day of Gary Hutch's murder A retaliation attack was thought to have been extremely likely Daniel Kenhan's track record for being present at MGM events Had surely made the Regency weigh-in a high-risk public event How was it that members of the press were in attendance Yet there were no police there? The Gardaí had difficult questions to answer John O'Driscoll is former assistant commissioner.
2: Well, of course, on any given day, including today, there are members of organised crime groups positioned throughout the city, the state, and at a wider level throughout Europe, and it is an impossibility to be at every location where those people are. If there had been evidence in advance that the event that took place was being planned, we certainly would have been there. The journalists were not there because they had that information. They were there simply because it was a way in at which members of an organized crime group would attend. The ideal situation would have been that we would have had a greater level of intelligence in advance, but we're not always there when murder takes place. And on that occasion, unfortunately, we weren't.
1: Since 2016, the Gardaí have told this line, that it's impossible for them to have a presence every time gangsters meet up. It is something they still face criticism for. After all, this wasn't just any cardboard gangster. It was the Kinnahan Gang, right when things were beginning to boil over.
5: I think the fact that there was no surveillance or police presence on the Regency on the day of that attack is probably one of the biggest failings of Garda headquarters in the past two or three decades. At its best, it showed a complete and utter failing of our intelligence services to to know what was actually happening at that time and to take the appropriate action to stop it. It just almost beggar's belief that one of the most prolific drug traffickers in Western Europe could fly into Dublin, engage in this type of activity, and no one is monitoring what he's doing. I've often wondered, I I really, really have wondered whether there was a surveillance team there watching what happened. and they just didn't disclose their presence afterwards. I've often wondered, is that a possibility? If it is, it would make the guard's position even worse than it already is, but it can be described as nothing but a disaster for them.
1: Within hours of the attack, the hunt was underway for the gunmen, and it was clear who the guardies should be focusing their attention on.
3: You'd know, you know from intelligence and you know from working in the field. You know exactly, some things you can't prove outright, but you know exactly who's doing what within reason and who are the likely suspects who would do this.
1: At the Regency, a massive crime scene investigation began. Ballistic experts scoured the scene. Bundles of cross-city CCTV evidence would have to be gathered and examined, in a bid to find out where the multiple getaway cars had gone. All of the members of the hit squad had been well disguised. All but one. The man in the flat cap. Not just that, Ernie Leslie's iconic photograph had captured his face in high definition. The image of Flat Cap and the man in drag would make the front page of the Sunday World, although Gardy had asked that their faces be pixelated. For detectives, though, they could see his face in full technicolour. And it wouldn't be long before he'd be identified with help from the PSNI. David Byrne's body had been cordoned off, and at 6 pm, Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Michael Curtis was brought in to examine the scene. A forensic tent was erected over the body beside the reception desk. In his pathology report, Dr. Curtis described how Byrne's body had exhibited residual warmth. There was a considerable pool of blood behind and to the left of his head. The injury sustained had been instantaneously fatal and that there were catastrophic gunshot injuries to either side of his head. An extremely violent murder, he concluded. Within hours of the murder, photos of David Byrne's dead body flooded social media. Numerous videos made their way onto Facebook and YouTube. It was all very public. David Byrne was family to some of the cartel's top men. His brother Liam and cousin Fat Freddy had worked alongside Daniel and Christopher since their youth. His brother-in-law Thomas bomber Kavanagh controlled the majority of the cartel's UK operations. This was beyond personal. It became clear to the Gardaí that not only was a retaliation attack likely, it was imminent. Pat he was Chief Superintendent of the DMO North Central Division.
0: Like, and I remember having a meeting with my superintendent and we discussed this and I can remember saying to him, look, this is going to gear up. This is not going to be over. Like, I you know, this is connected to the previous murder in Spain. So this is only the start of it.
3: You'd know immediately what this entailed, you know, and you knew immediately that there's going to be a backlash and then a further backlash. And you had to ...get a plan together and get people together... ...and prepare for the coming storm.
0: What I was surprised at was how quickly the response came.
1: In the days following the Regency attack... Capital was on high alert. Particularly Dublin's north inner city, the Hutch stronghold. Although Jerry had been living his early retirement in the sun, the majority of his family remained in Dublin one. For a family of ten, it was remarkable how many still called the North Inner City their home. In 1971, The Hutches moved from the tenements in Dublin's corporation buildings to Summerhill. There, some got involved in crime, by 2016, most had retired. Patsy Hutch, Gary's dad, lived on Champions Avenue. It had been three days since the Regency shooting had taken place. Tensions were so high. A decision had been made to have Gardy stationed outside his house—a twenty-four-hour patrol, one that has stayed present till this very day. John Hutch, Jerry's older brother, lived on Drumolly Avenue, just off the North Circular Road, until he passed away in an accident in 2022. The family also had a younger brother, Derek who took his own life in February 2009. Finally, it was Eddie Hutch. Or Nettie, as he was affectionately known. Neddy lived on Poplar Row, in a small flat with his second wife. He was a taxi man by trade. In years gone by, he had some skin in the game. He would have gone along to anti-drug meetings, he was a decent character, he he had form as everybody in the north inner city had, so some sort of uh, ordinary decent criminal. In 1996, Eddie was one of a number of Hutch members that was targeted by CAB and Operation Alpha. A bank account with 150 grand and it was seized from him. But 20 years on, Eddie was more than content. To live a very ordinary life. The Hutches are a popular family in Dublin 1. But Eddie seemed universally liked. It was hard to find a person who had a bad word to say against him.
0: Eddie was one of the guys.
1: Neil Ring is a counsellor for the North Inner City. He's known the Hutch
0: family for decades. He was a taxi driver and I used to be in the bridge tavern in Summerhill and many a Friday night after closing time, Eddie'd be outside in the car. He'd be just bringing people to and fro and he'd bring all ones into town for their messages, you know, a fiver and he was just, he was a lovely guy just doing his bit, you know, leading his life.
7: Well, the Regency Hotel happened on February the 5th. And it was a Monday night, February the 8th, when the whole north inner city had been swamped with Gardee. Huge Garda response, obviously, to the Regency, a lot of fear in the communities. Uh, people were genuinely uh, concerned, and people were waiting for the retaliation from the Kennahan organisation.
1: Eddie was on his way home from the shops. He'd been quiet at work all day. He'd normally love a chinwag with a passenger or two. But not today. Not after that weekend. Eddie, like everyone else in the family, was worried. Not for his own safety. But those around him. He loved his family through and through. The last thing he wanted was to see an all-out feud escalate. The traffic approaching Newcomen Bridge was crazy. Absolutely chock-a-block as people made their way home from the city centre in the evening rain. Up ahead were flashing lights. It was a checkpoint. Not just that, an armoured one. In the three days since the Regency, they become a constant presence around their hometown. He passed through without incident. instant made his way home to the flat.
7: There's a space outside his flat and where he pulls in, he gets out of the taxi. Walks into his house but comes back out again to the taxi. He wanted to get something from the car but also he wanted to move the car
1: The flat had CCTV mounted above the front door. Eddie didn't want some young prick damaging his car as a sign of support for the Kinnahans. Audi went again back into the rain to bring the car back towards the flat to a spot that had just freed up outside. He inched the events up slowly until the passenger door was level with his gate as Eddie got out of the car stepped onto the path he glanced to his right towards the Ballybock road
7: you can see him turning around running into his house and then another car pulls up and that's when a gunman g- gets out has the mask on it's black you can see him with the two arms raised up and starts firing the shots
1: Eddie fumbled with the front door desperately trying to gain entry it opened and he darted into the hallway he swung a trailing hand behind him to close the door but no luck the door bounced back off the frame and the shooter burst in Margaret Eddy's wife screamed in horror as the gunman blasted rounds into his skull. She collapsed on the ground to comfort him as the gunmen made their getaway.
0: He was easy to follow, he was easy to get a mark on, he was easy to follow home, which they did, and they just followed him in from the taxi and they murdered him inside in his own sitting room. We were out having a pint somewhere and we heard it and I remember going by that way and it was just like, it was surreal. It was shocking. It was like anybody could become a target who was associated with Gerard Putch. The impact from Eddie, or Ned as we used to call him, was absolutely, like more than the Regency, more than Gary. This was somebody, one of our own in inverted commas, a guy just going about his business. Everybody knew him. A lovely guy. And that was a real, I don't say a wake-up call, but it was a real shock to the system that it got to that level within the community. That was Someone's neighbour, someone's friend, someone's drinking buddy, someone's customer, you know. It was just, it was very impactful around the area. There was huge, vast sums of money at stake involved. There was revenge involved. There was so much going on.
1: But in the end, with Eddie, there was a huge sympathy. People just saw him as a bystander who was caught up in this, and he had long given up any criminal activity, like his brother, and his youth, just because he's the brother of Gerald. He's taken out, you know. So it was horrible. Next time on the Kinahans.
3: You replay it in your head over and over. You'd be wondering what was I doing? He was standing at the bar. What was it? Was he having a pint? He was chatting with somebody, and all of a sudden, his life was just taken. You have to, you, you, do, you, you revisit that all the time. But then when you read, his brains was hanging out of his head. You know, there was a pool of blood. His eyes were opened, fixed
8: and dilated. I mean, why did I want to know that?
1: The Kinahans was brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, and produced by Urban Media. leave us a review if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far it only takes a second